0: Michael Easley in Context. Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favor. And Whereas both houses of Congress have by their joint committees requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many and signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. Now, therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th of November next, to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being who is the beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, or that will be, Now your host, Dr. Michael
1: Easley. Well, I hope that gets you in a thankful mood. (laughs) As I listen to these bites and pieces, it reminds me of how thankful we should be as a people of a country where freedom is still uh, fairly free and as believers in Christ where we have great spiritual freedom. You know, one of the greatest challenges as we try to be a thankful people is how do we not slide into comparison? How do we not slide into entitlement or thinking that we deserve something that someone else has? You know, we live in a world where we're bombarded with images and imagery about success, bigger, better, newer, more Uh, we're pulled, we're compelled. As I often say, I don't need anything until I go to the shopping mall. I don't need anything until I get on uh, shopping online for something. And then all of a sudden, I have all kinds of wants and needs. How do we remain a thankful people in a culture and a context where we're inundated by consumerism. Last time on the broadcast we began in Luke chapter 17 looking at the 10 lepers who were cleansed. Jesus is moving on the way to Jerusalem and he's going to pass by Samaria and Galilee. As he enters a village he encounters 10 lepers who stand at a distance from him begging for mercy. So I'm trying to help you and me as we think about being a thankful people, to recalibrate, we're all spiritual lepers. We're all people who are in sin, in a sin condition, and we cannot approach a holy God. Well, these ten lepers call out to him, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And we looked last time at what it meant for them to go and show themselves to the priest, and as they did, they were cleansed. When you and I come to Christ, when we trust in Christ and Christ alone, we're cleansed. We're cleansed of our sin. And so as we resume our text, remember, uh, we are helpless, throwaway people, marginalized. We're lepers spiritually. We have the compassion of this incredible Jesus. And as a result, we should be the most thankful people on the planet. Well, let's pick up the broadcast as we remind ourselves why, why should we be a thankful people no matter what our circumstance or experience tries to tell us and you and i have to make a choice are we going to be ungrateful compare ourselves to others uh, always be the underachiever in the sense that i don't have this or have that or will we understand our inheritance in christ and what he has done for us by forgiving us calling us his sons and daughters adopting us into his eternal kingdom let's pick up Christ's storyline in luke chapter 17 picking up at verse 15 verse 15 now one of them when he saw that he had been healed turned back glorifying God with a loud voice and he fell on his face at his feet giving thanks to him and he was a Samaritan hopeless throwaway people secondly the compassion of our Jesus thirdly the thankfulness of a throwaway leper the ten are cleansed, but only one returns. It adds tension to the scene here because this is where Luke identifies them. He said he's going through Samaria and Galilee in verse 2, but now he, uh, verse 14, but now he, he flat, flat out says one and this one and this one was a Samaritan. Now it's hard for you and me to get our arms around this. The closest way I think we can understand it is the way uh, in Africa certain uh, combating people groups will actually euthanize eugenics, uh, the the stuff of ethnic cleansing. These people are worthless. Destroy them. It's the way Hitler wanted the world to look at the Jew. They're subhuman. Destroy them. And that is the way a Samaritan was viewed. So you have a leper who's already unclean outside the community, and, oh, by the way, he's a Samaritan. This is the stuff of ethnic cleansing. A diseased person who should be killed has no purpose in life. And if you understand the context a little bit, Jesus master have mercy on us, to throw away refuse of humanity that no one would regard or pay attention to, and the lowest of the lowest a Samaritan. And we found our Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman that caused quite a stir. Even she says, what business do you have being a Jew talking to me, a Samaritan? You don't talk to me. I'm less than human, by the way, most Jews look at me. He comes back. Notice the verbs. He turned back. He's headed in a direction. He sees he's healed. Couldn't have been more than a few steps. He turns back, loud voice glorifying God falls on his face at the feet of Jesus and thanks him. Uh, A few weeks ago, we looked at a number of passages in the New Testament where worship involves falling on your face. So we see a vivid illustration of thankfulness here because he's gonna be restored, no longer diseased. He'll be no longer isolated and he gives glory to God. He turns and comes back to tell the man, thank you for what you've done. So lessons here are easy. Uh, Do you take time to thank God for the activity in your life? Um, Do you recount what God's done for you? Obviously, your salvation is the first big thank you. Our lives, I believe, as a result of our salvation, should be a lifelong thank you back to Christ. That's what a disciple does. He or she lives as a thank you all of your life back for what he's done for you to forgive you of your sins. The old ditty, you know, counter blessings, name them one by one, counter many blessings, see what God has done. A little bit schlocky of a hymn, but really good theology. Because we forget. And he falls on his face. Verse 17 Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed, but the nine? Where are they? Was no one found to return to give glory to God except this foreigner? Who is Christ speaking to in this section? The leper? The Samaritan leper? No. Look at the grammar. Were there not ten cleansed but the nine? Where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? He's talking to the Jews around him. If you read the whole chapter, you'll see the context. It's a teaching opportunity. Jesus is the always deliberate, always intentional, never, oh, by the way, it's always on purpose. Everything he does or says is deliberate. And so he's saying to those around, where are the nine? The only one that came back, this foreigner? Now Jesus is not using a word that's rude or discriminatory or politically incorrect. He's calling the person what the community would call him, a foreigner. We would say an undocumented worker in our politically correct language today, not an illegal alien. You can't use those words anymore. You get in trouble. So it's undocumented worker. It's the same feel. This foreigner? I'd love for someone who writes the the dramas and the uh, fiction and so forth to come up with a story But the nine. It'd be cool to have a play of what the nine did and how they got back into their no longer isolated, no longer diseased life and how quickly they forgot what had been done for them and certainly never thanked the one who did it for them. The phrase we can't develop in detail, but the phrases are rich with theology. Cleansed has to do with the play on the unclean clean, but it has to do with sin. Uh, No one's found except this foreigner who gives glory to God. Back verse 15, he glorified God. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Jesus remarks to the leper and to you and me. He commends the gratitude. Verse 19, he said to him, stand up. Go, your faith has made you well. The word well here is sozo. It's the most common word for salvation in the New Testament. It means salvation or deliverance. More times than not, it means spiritual salvation. Once in a while, it can be like saved from the sea. If you're out in a boat and everyone's going to drown and you're sozoed, you can be saved. If you know a little bit of theology, we use the big word soteriology. It's the study of the doctrine of salvation sozo is kind of works its way into english and we sort of gloss it and the idea is saved or be be delivered and the word he uses here is the one your faith has made you saved he's not saying your faith healed you and cured you of your leprosy what did he do he started walking is that really faith no the faith is in the key phrase turned back glorified god and thanked christ and worshiped him we'd say he became a believer in Jesus Christ. He turned back, he glorified God, and he worshipped Jesus Christ. He fell at his feet. You don't worship people, you worship God. And so, and when Jesus echoes this in verse 18, was this one who gave glory to God. You see, they're all healed of their illness, but only one is healed of his condition. They're all healed of their disease, but only one is forgiven of his sins. They're all saved from leprosy, but only one is saved from eternal separation and hell apart from Christ. A few lessons. Number one, comparison is the kiss of death of gratitude. Comparison is the kiss of death of gratitude. I drive a 2005 Honda Pilot that I love. It has 58, almost 59,000 miles on it. It's sort of like a baseball glove. It just fits. I keep it very well. I change the oil more frequently than not. I have it detailed from time to time. Uh, I I do everything on schedule, sometimes early. I'm a fanatic about keeping it up. And the, the hard part about a Honda is you will hate the car before it ever gives you any trouble. You know, it'll have 260 miles on it and still, still be going. And you'll say, I want a new car, but you don't need one. It just keeps on going unless something goes uh, unusual with those kind of cars. And uh, I love my Honda Pilot until once in a while I get into a different, newer, nicer SUV. And once I do, I go, hmm, you know, I mean, after all, it's got almost 60,000 miles on it. I mean, you know, it's time for me to get a newer car. And uh, Cindy and I... We don't have any debt. We uh, spend less than we earn. We give first and foremost to the Lord. Uh, we save. We save for our kids' college. Uh, we live under our income. We're very good with our money. God's been very kind to us. You know, it's really no, it's not rocket finance. If you spend less than you earn, you give to the Lord, you stay out of debt, you do it for a long period of time, you'll be fine. It's just that simple. It really is. And so we, we've not done the best with all our money, but we've tried to follow those simple principles, and God's been kind. So all I'm saying is, if I wanted to buy a car, Cindy says, go buy a car. We've got the money, go buy a car. So I look and look and look, and she sends me some links, and, oh, yeah, yeah, that's just a lot of money for a car, and, yeah, it's better than mine, and it does this and does that, and, you know, it gets better gas mileage. And... Until I look at those cars, I'm happy with my baseball glove. I I don't need any clothes until I go to the mall. And if I go to the mall, I need uh, some tailored shirts, you know, because some of you have told me you're not supposed to wear these, you know, poncho shirts. You're supposed to have tailored shirts. i got a closet full of poncho shirts. They do just fine. No, you have to have tailored shirts in Nashville. So I'll wear a sport coat and cover it there. Well, I don't need any clothes, and I have, I have a whole lot of blue jeans now. Not the right ones yet, apparently, but I have a whole lot of them. I don't need a thing until I compare myself to somebody else. Bigger, better, newer, more. Comparison is the kiss of death of gratitude. When you start comparing yourself to what someone else has, what the mall has, what the Apple store has, whatever it is that you want has, when you start comparing it yourself to them, you become ungrateful. If you have the resources and all that, I'm not saying, you know, don't do that stuff. Don't hear me say that. I'm just saying it works against a grateful heart when we compare ourselves to other people, other things, other possessions, other stuff that they have. I could own 300 watches and buy a new car every year because I love watches and cars. It's this disease I have. I don't know what it is. And when I compare those things to other things, I go, you know, I don't have one that looks like that. I think I'll get another watch. I had the money to do it, but do I need to do it? You have the freedom. But when you compare yourself to what other people have who may have a little more than you, you become ungrateful for what you have. Secondly, thankfulness defends against bitterness and self-preoccupation. Thankfulness defends against bitterness and a self-preoccupation. It is an absolute truth. You show me a bitter person, I will show you an ungrateful person. You show me a joyful person, I will show you a thankful person. It is as simple as visiting uh, assisted living retirement center and talking to some people who are older and have some struggles. They fall in one of two categories. They're bitter or they're sweet. Entropy is tough to beat, men and women. I don't want to be a bitter old man. Scares me to death to be a bitter old man. If Alzheimer's or dementia hits us, we may not have control over it. But just getting old and ornery is not an excuse for being ungrateful and not having joy. Thankfulness can't occupy preoccupation of self. It can't occupy the same space. A joyful person who understands he or she's been blessed is a thankful person. A critical person is a a bitter person. A self preoccupied person is not a joyful person. They're not a thankful person. It is a corollary. Impossible for the two to exist in the same room. Some of us live in a painful waiting room. I'm sitting in those waiting rooms a lot for different seasons of my life, and so that's sorry my worldview becomes a waiting room of and I look at these people's eyes and faces and I can tell you the pain they live with and I can tell you how I've tried to cope and everybody tries to cope. And we all share notes. Some of you know Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, she and I became friends when I was at Moody. And um, I did not know when I met her in 2005, I guess, uh, for the first time face to face, that she also lived with chronic pain. And I have a, a very treasured letter she wrote me when I first went to the Institute about living with chronic pain that I still, I still treasure it. Well, she told me about her chronic pain then, and then you've probably heard, of course, she has, uh, has advanced breast cancer. They did a radical double mastectomy on her recently. And, I, you know, I go, Lord, doesn't the woman have enough, for goodness sakes? She's a quadriplegic. She lives in chronic pain. How can you live in chronic pain when you're quadriplegic? And she's got breast cancer. Gentleman last night came up to me after the service and said, My mom has had two runs of breast cancer. They finally did the radical mastectomy and she's been clean for five years, and the last week they found breast cancer again. How do you find breast cancer when there's no breast and no limps, lymph nodes? How do you get breast cancer again? Some of you have lupus, some have MS, some have some forms of cancer, some live with pain, some of you have a parent or a loved one or a child that has chronic problems. And so I look at, I look at my life at this stage as a waiting room. I'm waiting for the doctor to work a miracle or give me a new pill. And I'm waiting for a new body. You may not be there right now. You may be healthy as a horse. God bless you for it. Enjoy it while you can. You may die that way. But this life is going to be a painful waiting room at times. And I have to make the determination, I don't want to be a bitter person. And only with Christ's help can I fight it off. Am I always happy and joyful? No. Just ask any of my family, any of my children. They will tell you, sometimes I'm a bear. But God, help me not to be characteristically an ungrateful, unthankful person. Third, thankfulness requires humility. Thankfulness requires humility. When someone does something for you, that's when you say thank you. Self-absorbed people are not thankful people, as I've already tried to argue. Arrogant people, people who live with an entitlement mindset. You know, the personal right thing, we made these little gods out of personal rights. Now entitlement has become so much a part of our mindset, we think we deserve stuff. I'm the worst father in the world in many categories, and one of them has been not giving my kids everything they want. And, you know, we never had an, a PlayStation, a Nintendo, an Xbox, and never will on my dollar. And I'm the worst. I'm the only parent in the room that feels that way. And if you young people be glad I'm not your daddy, I'm a bear. When we moved from uh, Chicago to here, Cindy bought a Wii for our kids. And we had words about that. That means we argued. We had words about that. And um, she said, well, I want to do something for them. They're moving again. I said, what do you mean? They got a place to sleep. They got clothes. They got food. What do you mean? Do something for them. Oh, well, no, give them a wee. And you know, my greatest delight is when they don't use it. I just love it. They don't use it. So, <laughs> Entitlement is an enemy of thankfulness. When I see uh, young children, and I'm not pointing any fingers because even though some are doing it right now, young children with iPhones and iTouches. Um, You know, not that any of my children have, but if they were to ask me, can I get an iPhone, I'd say, sure, get a J-O-B and make M-O-N-E-Y and B-U-Y your own (laughs) I-P-H-O-N-E. I'm not going to buy them an iPhone. I'm the worst father in the world. Because as I watched from the first child to our youngest children, how the culture has changed, everybody's throwing these things Nothing wrong with the stuff. Don't hear me criticize the stuff. It's what it breeds that I I have to have it to have an identity. If I don't have it, I'm not cool as my friends. And this entitlement attitude is an ungrateful attitude with what they do have. And so when they go to Comas, Peru, or Guatemala, or wherever, they get a real recalibration that you can have fun with a soccer ball in a dirt piece of you know, playing soccer with no technology and no toys and just a big old smile on your face because you get to play with your friends. Entitlement works against thankfulness. Thankfulness requires humility. You know what you deserve? You know what I deserve? You know what our entitlement is? Hell. You and I are entitled to hell. That's what we're entitled to. Each of us deserves hell. And God in his kind has saved you. And the leper comes back, a picture of you and me, and throws himself at the feet of Jesus, glorifying God, and says, Thank you. Eucharist is the word. Thank you. We're the nine. Weren't they healed also? Are you the one or you the nine? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and He saved you and you trusted Christ, if Jesus never did one more thing for you as long as you lived, would you still be thankful? If he never answered a prayer, he never helped you with a problem, he never mended your broken heart, he never gave you the dream job you wanted to, never found you the husband or wife you wanted, never have been able to reconcile with your ex-husband, ex-wife, your kids who've broken your heart. If he never did one more thing for you, would you be thankful? Now, I don't think that's our God. I think our God is a merciful, wonderful, loving, compassionate, long-suffering, patient, kind, lavishing things on us that we don't deserve. But I almost have to overcompensate and say, Michael, if you never did one more thing for him, would you praise him nonetheless? And that's when you begin to understand your salvation. Father, thanks for the privilege of worshiping you. Thank you for salvation that's rich and free. Thank You for a gorgeous day outside. Thank You for the blessings we do have for life, for health, for food, for family, for friendships, for job, for money in the bank, for a place to call home, for the gorgeous weather today, for this time of year, for our country, for the freedoms we enjoy. Father, recalibrate us from... The selfish, arrogant, all about me, bitter entitlement mindset that we can easily slip into, to a life of humility, of thankfulness, of your extraordinary blessings in the personal work of Christ. In his name we ask and pray, amen.
0: If you have questions or comments, please let us know at michaelincontext.com. Follow Michael on Twitter at Dr. Easley. Thank you for listening to Michael Easley in Context.